Chapter Ten of They and I by Jerome K. Jerome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. They and I by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter Ten. She's a good woman," said Robina. "Who's a good woman?" I asked. "He's trying, I expect, although he is an old dear to live with. I mean," continued Robina, addressing apparently the rising moon. And then there are all those children. You were thinking of Mrs. Saint Leonard, I suggested. There seems no way of making her happy," explained Robina. On Thursday, I went round early in the morning to help Janie pack the baskets for the picnic. It was her own idea, the picnic. Speaking of picnics, I said, "You might have thought," went on Robina, "that she was dressing for her own funeral. She said she knew she was going to catch her death of cold sitting on the wet grass. Something told her." I reminded her it hadn't rained for three weeks and that everything was as dry as a bone, but she said that made no difference to grass. There was always a moisture in grass, and that cushions and all that only helped to draw it out. Not that it mattered; the end had to come, and so long as the others were happy, you know her style. Nobody ever thought of her. She was to be dragged here, dragged there. She talked about herself as if she were some sacred image. It got upon my nerves at last, so that I persuaded Janie to let me offer to stop at home with her. I wasn't too keen about going myself, not by that time. When our desires leave us, says Rochefoucauld, I remarked, we pride ourselves upon our virtue in having overcome them. Well, it was her fault, anyhow, retorted Robina, and I didn't make a virtue of it. I told her I'd just as soon not go, and that I felt sure the others would be all right without her, so that there was no need for her to be dragged anywhere. And then she burst into tears. She said, I suggested, that it was hard on her to have children who could wish to go to a picnic and leave their mother at home, that it was little enough enjoyment she had in her life, heaven knows, that if there was one thing she had been looking forward to, it was this day's outing. But still, of course, if everybody would be happier without her, something of the sort, admitted Robina. Only there was a lot of it. We had to all fuss round her and swear that without her, it wouldn't be worth calling a picnic. She brightened up on the way home. The screech owl in the yew tree emitted a blood-curdling scream. He perches there each evening on the extreme end of the longest bough, dimly outlined against the night. He has the appearance of a friendly hobgoblin, but I wish he didn't fancy himself as a vocalist. It is against his own interests, I am sure, if he only knew it. That American college yell of his must have the effect of sending every living thing within half a mile back into its hole. Maybe it is a provision of nature for clearing off the very old mice who have become stone deaf and would otherwise be a burden on their relatives. The others, unless out for suicide, must one thinks be tolerably safe. Ethelbertha is persuaded he is a sign of death, but seeing there isn't a square quarter of a mile in this county without its screech owl, there can hardly by this time be a resident that an assurance society would look at. Veronica likes him; she even likes his screech. I found her under the tree the other night, wrapped up in a shawl, trying to learn it, as if one of them were not enough. It made me quite cross with her. Besides, it wasn't a bit like it, as I told her. She said it was better than I could do, anyhow, and I was idiot enough to take up the challenge. It makes me angry now when I think of it—a respectable middle-aged literary man standing under a yew tree, trying to screech like an owl, and the bird was silly enough to encourage us. She was a charming girl, I said, seven and twenty years ago, when Saint Leonard fell in love with her. She had those dark, dreamy eyes so suggestive of veiled mysteries, and her lips must have looked bewitching when they pouted. I expect they often did. They do so still, but the pout of a woman of forty-six no longer fascinates. 
To a pretty girl of nineteen, a spice of temper and illogical unreasonableness are added attractions. The scratch of a blue-eyed kitten only tempts us to tease her the more. Young Hubert St. Leonard, he had curly brown hair with a pretty trick of blushing and was going to conquer the world, found her fretfulness, her very selfishness adorable, and told her so, kneeling before her, gazing into her bewildering eyes. Only he called it her waywardness, her imperiousness, begged her for his sake to be more capricious, told her how beautiful she looked when displeased. So, no doubt, she did at nineteen. "'He didn't tell you all that, did he?' demanded Robina. "'Not a word,' I reassured her, "'except that she was acknowledged by all authorities "'to have been the most beautiful girl in Tunbridge Wells, "'and that her father had been ruined by a rascally solicitor. "'No, I was merely, to use the phrase of the French police courts, "'reconstructing the crime.' "'It may be all wrong,' grumbled Robina. "'It may be,' I agreed. "'But why? Does it strike you as improbable?' We were sitting in the porch, waiting for Dick to come by the white path across the field. "'No,' answered Robina. "'It all sounds very probable. I wish it didn't.' "'You must remember,' I continued, "'that I am an old playgoer. I have sat out so many of this world's dramas, it is as easy to reconstruct them backwards as forwards. We are witnessing the last act of the St. Leonard drama, that unsatisfactory last act that merely fills out time after the play has ended. The intermediate acts were probably more exciting— containing passionate scenes, played with much earnestness, chiefly for the amusement of the servants. But the first act, with the Kentish lanes and woods for a back-cloth, must have been charming. Here was the devout lover she had heard of, dreamed of. It is delightful to be regarded as perfection. Not absolute perfection, for that might put a strain upon us to live up to, but as so near perfection that to be more perfect would just spoil it. The spots upon us, that unappreciative friends and relations would magnify into blemishes, seen in their true light, artistic shading relieving a faultlessness that might otherwise prove too glaring. Dear Hubert found her excellent, just as she was in every detail. It would have been a crime against love for her to seek to change herself. "'Well, then it was his fault,' argued Robina, "'if he was silly enough to like her faults and encourage her in them.' "'What could he have done?' I asked, even if he had seen them. A lover does not point out his mistress's shortcomings to her. Much the more sensible plan if he did, insisted Robina. Then, if she cared for him, she could set to work to cure herself. You would like it, I said. You would appreciate it in your own case. Can you imagine young Butte? Why young Butte? demanded Robina. What's he got to do with it? Nothing, I answered, except that he happens to be the first male creature you have ever come across since you were six that you haven't flirted with. I don't flirt with them, said Robina. I merely try to be nice to them. With the exception of young Butte, I persisted. He irritates me, Robina explained. I was reading, I said, the other day, an account of the marriage customs prevailing among the lower Caucasians. The lover takes his stand beneath his lady's window, and having attracted her attention, proceeds to sing. And if she seems to like it, if she listens to it without getting mad, that means she doesn't want him. But if she gets upset about it, slams down the window and walks away, then it's all right. I think it's the lower Caucasians. Must be a very silly people, said Robina. I suppose a pail of water would be the highest proof of her affection he could hope for. A complex being, man, I agreed. We will call him X. Can you imagine young X coming to you and saying, My dear Robina, you have many excellent qualities. You can be amiable, so long as you are having your own way in everything. "'but thwarted you can be just horrid. 
you are very kind to those who are willing for you to be kind to them in your own way which is not always their way you can be quite unselfish when you happen to be in an unselfish mood which is far from frequent you are capable and clever but like most capable and clever people impatient and domineering highly energetic when not feeling lazy ready to forgive the moment your temper is exhausted you are generous and frank but if your object could only be gained through meanness or deceit you would not hesitate a moment longer than was necessary to convince yourself that the circumstances justified the means you are sympathetic tender-hearted and have a fine sense of justice but i can see that tongue of yours if not carefully watched wearing decidedly shrewish you have any amount of grit a man might go tiger hunting with you with no one better but you are obstinate conceited and exacting in short to sum you up you have all the makings in you of an ideal wife combined with faults sufficient to make a socrates regret he'd ever married you yes i would said robina springing to her feet i could not see her face but i knew there was the look upon it that made primgate want to paint her as joan of arc only it would never stop long enough i'd love him for talking like that and i'd respect him if he was that sort of man i'd pray god to help me to be the sort of woman he wanted me to be i'd try i'd try all day long i would i wonder i said robina had surprised me i admit it i thought i knew the sex better any girl would said robina he'd be worth it it would be a new idea i mused gott im himmel what a new world might it not create the fancy began to take hold of me love no longer blind love refusing any more to be the poor blind fool sport of gods and men love no longer passion's slave his bonds broken the senseless bandage flung aside love helping life instead of muddling it marriage the foundation of civilization no longer reared upon the sands of lies and illusions but grappled to the rock of truth reality have you ever read tom jones i said no answered robina i've always heard it wasn't a nice book it isn't i said man isn't a nice animal not all of him nor woman either there's a deal of the beast in man what can you expect till a few paltry thousands of years ago he was a beast fighting with other beasts his fellow denizens of the woods and caves watching for his prey crouched in the long grass of the river's bank tearing it with claws and teeth growling as he ate so he lived and died through the dim unnamed ages transmitting his beast's blood his bestial instincts to his offspring growing ever stronger fiercer from generation to generation while the rocks piled up their strata and the oceans shaped their beds moses why lord rothschild's great-grandfather a few score times removed must have known moses talked with them babylon it is a modern city fallen into disuse for the moment owing to alteration of traffic routes history it is a tale of to-day man was crawling about the world on all fours learning to be an animal for millions of years before the secret of his birth was whispered to him it is only during the last few centuries that he has been trying to be a man our modern morality why compared with the teachings of nature it is but a few days old what do you expect that he shall forget the lessons of the eons at the bidding of the hours then you advise me to read tom jones said robina yes i said i do i should not if i thought you were still a child knowing only blind trust or blind terror the sun is not extinguished because occasionally obscured by mist the scent of the rose is not dead because of the worm in the leaf a healthy rose can afford a few worms has got to anyhow all men are not tom joneses the standard of masculine behaviour continues to go up 
Many of us make fine efforts to conform to it, and some of us succeed. But the Tom Jones is there in all of us, who are not anemic or consumptive. And there's no sense at all in getting cross with us about it, because we cannot help it. We are doing our best. In another hundred thousand years or so, provided all goes well, we shall be the perfect man. And seeing our early training, I flatter myself that up to the present we have done remarkably well. Nothing like being satisfied with oneself, said Robina. I'm not satisfied, I said, I'm only hopeful. But it irritates me when I hear people talk as though man had been born a white-souled angel and was making supernatural efforts to become a sinner. That seems to me the way to discourage him. What he wants is bucking up. Somebody to say to him, Bravo, why, this is splendid. Just think, my boy, what you were, and that not so very long ago. An unwashed, hairy savage. Your law, that of the jungle. Your morals, those of the rabbit, Warren. Now look at yourself, dressed in your little shiny hat, your trousers neatly creased, walking with your wife to church on Sunday. Keep on, that's all you've got to do. In a few more centuries your own mother nature won't know you. You women, I continued, why a handful of years ago we bought and sold you, kept you in cages, took the stick to you when you were not spry in doing what you were told. Did you ever read the history of patient Griselda? Yes, said Robina, I have. I gathered from her tone that the Joan of Arc expression had departed. Had Primgate wanted to paint her at that particular moment, I should have suggested Catherine, during the earlier stages, listening to a curtain lecture from Petruchio. Are you suggesting that all women should take her for a model? No, I said I'm not. Though were we living in Chaucer's time, I might, and you would not think it even silly. What I'm impressing upon you is that the human race has yet a little way to travel before the average man can be regarded as an up-to-date edition of King Arthur. The King Arthur of the poetical legend, I mean. Don't be too impatient with him. Thinking what a beast he has been ought to make him impatient himself with himself, considered Robina. He ought to be feeling so ashamed of himself as to be willing to do anything. The owl in the old yew screamed, whether with indignation or amusement I cannot tell. And woman, I said, had the power been hers, would she have used it to sweeter purpose? Where is your evidence? Your Cleopatras, Pompadours, Jezebels, your Catherines of Russia, late Empresses of China, your Faustines of all ages and all climes, your Mother Brownrigs, your Lucretia Borgias, Salome's, I could weary you with names, your Roman taskmistresses, your drivers of lodging-house slavies, your ladies who whipped their pages to death in the Middle Ages, your modern dames of fashion decked with the plumage of the tortured grove. There have been other women also, noble women, their names like beacon lights studying the dark waste of history. So there have been noble men, saints, martyrs, heroes. The sex line divides us physically, not morally. Woman has been man's accomplice in too many crimes to claim to be his judge. Male and female created he them, like and like, for good and evil. By good fortune I found a loose match. I lighted a fresh cigar. Dick, I suppose, is the average man, said Robina. Most of us are, I said, when we are at home. Carlyle was the average man in the little front parlor in Cheney Row, though to hear folks talk you might think no married couple outside literary circles had ever been known to exchange a cross look. So was Oliver Cromwell in his own palace with the door shut, Mrs. Cromwell must have thought him monstrous silly, placing sticky sweetmeats for his guests to sit on. Told him so, most likely. A cheery, kindly man, notwithstanding, though given to moods. He and Mrs. Cromwell seemed to have rubbed along on the whole pretty well together. 
Old Sam Johnson, great, God-fearing, lovable, cantankerous old brute, life with him in a small house on a limited income must have had its ups and downs. Milton and Frederick the Great were, one hopes, a little below the average, did their best, no doubt, lacked understanding, not so easy as it looks, living up to the standard of the average man. Very clever people in particular find it tiring. "'I shall never marry,' said Robina. "'At least I hope I shan't.' "'Why hope?' I asked. "'Because I hope I shall never be idiot enough,' she answered. "'I see it all so clearly. I wish I didn't. Love. It's only an ugly thing with a pretty name. It will not be me that he will fall in love with. He will not know me until it is too late. How can he? It will be merely with the outside of me, my pink and white skin, my rounded arms. I feel it sometimes when I see men looking at me, and it makes me mad.' and at other times the admiration in their eyes pleases me, and that makes me madder still. The moon had slipped behind the wood. She had risen, and leaning against the porch was standing with her hands clasped. I fancy she had forgotten me. She seemed to be talking to the night. "'It's only a trick of nature to make fools of us,' she said. "'He will tell me I am all the world to him, that his love will outlive the stars, will believe it himself at the time, poor fellow.' He will call me a hundred pretty names, will kiss my feet and hands, and if I'm fool enough to listen to him, it may last, she laughed. It was rather an ugly laugh. Six months, with luck perhaps a year, if I'm careful not to go out in the east wind and come home with a red nose, and never let him catch me in curl papers. It will not be me that he will want, only my youth and the novelty of me and the mystery. And when that is gone... She turned to me. It was a strange face I saw then in the pale light, quite a fierce little face. She laid her hands upon my shoulders, and I felt them cold. "'What comes when it is dead?' she said. "'What follows? You must know. Tell me, I want the truth.' Her vehemence had arisen so suddenly, the little girl I had set out to talk with was no longer there. To my bewilderment it was a woman that was questioning me. I drew her down beside me, but the childish face was still stern. "'I want the truth,' she said, so that I answered very gravely, when the passion is past, when the glory and the wonder of desire, nature's eternal ritual of marriage, solemnizing, sanctifying it to her commands, is ended, when, sooner or later, some grey dawn finds you wandering bewildered in once familiar places, seeking vainly the lost palace of youth's dreams, when love's frenzy is faded, like the fragrance of the blossom, like the splendour of the dawn, there will remain to you just what was there before, no more, no less." If passion was all you had to give to one another, God help you. You have had your hour of madness. It is finished. If greed of praise and worship was your price, well, you have had your payment. The bargain is complete. If mere hope to be made happy was your lure, one pities you. We do not make each other happy. Happiness is the gift of the gods, not of man. The secret lies within you, not without. What remains to you will depend not upon what you thought, but upon what you are. If behind the lover there was the man, behind the impossible goddess of his love-sick brain some honest human woman, then life lies not behind you but before you. Life is giving, not getting. That is the mistake we most of us set out with. It is the work that is the joy, not the wages, the game, not the score. The lover's delight is to yield, not to claim. The crown of motherhood is pain. To serve the state at cost of ease and leisure, to spend his thought and labor upon a hundred schemes is the man's ambition. Life is doing, not having. It is to gain the peak the climber strives, not to possess it. 
Fools marry, thinking what they are going to get out of it. Good store of joys and pleasures, opportunities for self-indulgence, eternal soft caresses, the wages of the wanton. The rewards of marriage are toil, duty, responsibility, manhood, womanhood. Love's baby talk you will have outgrown. You will no longer be his goddess, angel, popsy-wopsy, queen of his heart. There are finer names than these. Wife, mother, priestess in the temple of humanity. Marriage is renunciation, the sacrifice of self upon the altar of the race. A trick of nature, you call it, perhaps, but a trick of nature compelling you to surrender yourself to the purposes of God. I fancy we must have sat in silence for quite a long while for the moon, creeping upward past the wood, had flooded the fields again with light before Robina spoke. "'Then all love is needless,' she said. "'We could do better without it. Choose with more discretion. If it is only something that worries us for a little while and then passes, what is the sense of it?' "'You could ask the same question of life itself,' I said. "'Something that worries us for a little while then passes. Perhaps the worry, as you call it, has its uses. Volcanic upheavals are necessary to the making of a world.' Without them the ground would remain rock-bound, unfitted for its purposes. That explosion of youth's pent-up forces that we term love serves to the making of man and woman. It does not die, it takes new shape. The blossom fades as the fruit forms. The passion passes to give place to peace. The trembling lover has become the helper, the comforter, the husband. But the failures, Robina persisted. I do not mean the silly or the wicked people— but the people who begin by really loving one another, only to end in disliking, almost hating one another, how do they get there? Sit down, I said, and I will tell you a story. Once upon a time there was a girl and a boy who loved her. She was a clever, brilliant girl, and she had the face of an angel. They lived near to one another, seeing each other almost daily. But the boy, awed by the difference of their social position, kept his secret, as he thought, to himself dreaming, as youth will, of the day when fame and wealth would bridge the gulf between them. The kind look in her eyes, the occasional seeming pressure of her hand, he allowed to feed his hopes. And on the morning of his departure for London an incident occurred that changed his vague imaginings to set resolve. He had sent on his scanty baggage by the carrier, intending to walk the three miles to the station. It was early in the morning, and he had not expected to meet a soul. But a mile from the village he overtook her. She was reading a book, but she made no pretense that the meeting was accidental, leaving him to form what conclusions he would. She walked with him some distance, and he told her of his plans and hopes, and she answered him quite simply that she should always remember him, always be more glad than she could tell to hear of his success. Near the end of the lane they parted, she wishing him in that low, sweet woman's voice of hers all things good. He turned a little farther on, and found that she had also turned. She waved her hand to him, smiling, and through the long day's journey, and through many days to come, there remained with him that picture of her, bringing with it the scent of the pine woods, her white hand waving to him, her sweet eyes smiling wistfully. But fame and fortune are not won so quickly as boys dream, nor is life as easy to live bravely as it looks in visions. It was nearly twenty years before they met again. Neither had married. Her people were dead, and she was living alone, and to him the world at last had opened her doors. She was still beautiful, a gracious, gentle lady she had grown, clothed with that soft, sweet dignity that time bestows upon rare women, rendering them fairer with the years. To the man it seemed a miracle. The dream of those early days came back to him, 
Surely there was nothing now to separate them. Nothing had changed but the years, bringing to them both wider sympathies, calmer, more enduring emotions. She welcomed him again with the old kind smile, a warmer pressure of the hand, and allowing a little time to pass for courtesy's sake, he told her what was the truth, that he had never ceased to love her, never ceased to keep the vision of her fair pure face before him, his ideal of all that man could find of help in womanhood. And her answer, until years later he read the explanation, remained a mystery to him. She told him that she loved him, that she had never loved any other man and never should, that his love, for so long as he chose to give it to her, she should always prize as the greatest gift of her life. But with that she prayed him to remain content. He thought, perhaps, it was a touch of woman's pride, of hurt dignity, that he had kept silent so long, not trusting her, that perhaps as time went by she would change her mind. But she never did. And after a while, finding that his persistence only pained her, he accepted the situation. She was not the type of woman about whom people talk scandal, nor would it have troubled her much had they done so. Able now to work where he would, he took a house in a neighboring village, where, for the best part of the year he lived, near to her, and to the end they remained lovers. "'I think I understand,' said Robina. "'I will tell you afterwards if I am wrong.' "'I told the story to a woman many years ago,' I said, "'and she also thought she understood, but she was only half right. "'We will see,' said Robina. "'Go on.' "'She left a letter to be given to him after her death, "'in case he survived her, if not to be burned unopened.' In it she told him her reason, or rather her reasons, for having refused him. It was an odd letter. The reasons sounded so pitiably insufficient, until one took the pains to examine them in the cold light of experience. And then her letter struck one, not as foolish, but as one of the grimmest commentaries upon marriage that perhaps had ever been penned. It was because she had wished always to remain his ideal, to keep their love for one another to the end untarnished, to be his true helpmeet in all things, that she had refused to marry him. Had he spoken that morning, she had waited for him in the lane, she had half hoped, half feared it, she might have given her promise. For youth, so she wrote, always dreams it can find a new way. She thanked God that he had not. Sooner or later, so ran the letter, you would have learned, dear, that I was neither saint nor angel, but just a woman, such a tiresome, inconsistent creature, she would have exasperated you, full of a thousand follies and irritabilities that would have marred for you all that was good in her. I wanted you to have of me only what was worthy, and this seemed the only way. Counting the hours to your coming, hating the pain of your going, I could always give to you my best. The ugly words, the whims and frets that poison speech, they could wait. It was my lover's hour. And you, dear, were always so tender, so gay. You brought me joy with both your hands. Would it have been the same had you been my husband? How could it? There were times, even as it was, when you vexed me. Forgive me, dear, I mean it was my fault. Ways of thought and action that did not fit in with my ways. That I was not large-minded enough to pass over. As my lover, they were but as spots upon the sun. It was easy to control the momentary irritation that they caused me. Time was too precious for even a moment of estrangement. As my husband, the jarring note would have been continuous, would have widened into discord. You see, dear, I was not great enough to love all of you. I remember as a child how indignant I always felt with God when my nurse told me he would not love me because I was naughty, that he only loved good children. It seemed such a poor sort of love, that. 
Yet that is precisely how we men and women do love, taking only what gives us pleasure, repaying the rest with anger. There would have arisen the unkind words that can never be recalled, the ugly silences, the gradual withdrawing from one another. I dared not face it. It was not all selfishness. Truthfully, I can say I thought more of you than of myself. I wanted to keep the shadows of life away from you. We men and women are like the flowers. It is in sunshine that we come to our best. You were my hero. I wanted you to be great. I wanted you to be surrounded by lovely dreams. I wanted your love to be a thing holy, helpful to you. It was a long letter. I have given you the gist of it. Again there was a silence between us. "'You think she did right?' asked Robina. "'I cannot say,' I answered. "'There are no rules for life, only for the individual.' "'I have read it somewhere,' said Robina. "'Where was it? "'Love suffers all things and rejoices?' "'Maybe an old Thomas Kempis. I am not sure,' I said. "'It seems to me,' said Robina, "'that the explanation lies in that one sentence of hers. "'I was not great enough to love all of you.' "'It seems to me,' I said, "'that the whole art of marriage is the art of getting on with the other fellow. "'It means patience, self-control, forbearance. "'It means the laying aside of our self-conceit "'and admitting to ourselves that, judged by eyes less partial than our own, "'there may be much in us that is objectionable, that calls for alteration. "'It means toleration for views and opinions diametrically opposed to our most cherished convictions.' It means, of necessity, the abandonment of many habits and indulgences that, however trivial, have grown to be important to us. It means the shaping of our own desires to the needs of others, the acceptance often of surroundings and conditions personally distasteful to us. It means affection, deep and strong enough to bear away the ugly things of life, its quarrels, wrongs, misunderstandings, swiftly and silently into the sea of forgetfulness. It means courage, good humor, common sense." "'That is what I am saying,' explained Robina. "'It means loving him, even when he's naughty.' "'Dick came across the field. "'Robina rose and slipped into the house. "'You are looking mighty solemn, Dad,' said Dick. "'Thinking of life, Dick, I confessed, "'of the meaning and the explanation of it. "'Yes, it's a problem, life,' admitted Dick. "'A bit of a teaser,' I agreed. "'We smoked in silence for a while.' "'Loving a good woman must be a tremendous help to a man,' said Dick. "'He looked very handsome, very gallant, his boyish face flashing challenge to the fates. "'Tremendous, Dick,' I agreed. "'Robina called to him that his supper was ready. "'He knocked the ashes from his pipe and followed her into the house. "'Their laughing voices came to me broken through the half-closed doors. "'From the night around me rose a strange low murmur.' It seemed to me as though, above the silence, I heard the far-off music of the Mills of God. End of chapter 10